The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Thank you for being here with us this morning. And please pray with me. Father, come to your word now. We pray that your word would shape and change us, that it would go down to the very marrow of our bones and our being, that we might become more like your son, the word of God. So, Father, please, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts today be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're wearing green now. We've entered into a new liturgical season, and this is the summer, and so we're also beginning a new sermon series, which you may have noticed in maybe our social media posts. But we've entitled this sermon series, Returning to Reality, which I'll explain later. But it's a sermon series through the book of Proverbs, the book, predominant book of wisdom in the Bible, collections of wise sayings and proverbial wisdom that King Solomon gathered in the Old Testament so long ago. And so the first question that, of course, we're going to have today is, what is wisdom? Because wisdom isn't always clear. Certainly it involves knowledge and information, but we all know people who know a lot of things, but don't seem to be very wise. And it's often ambiguous what wisdom even requires. For example, Proverbs 26.4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Well, do you know what Proverbs 26, verse 5 says, the very next? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? Answer a fool or don't answer a fool? And it depends, of course, on wisdom. Well, so what is wisdom? That's our question this morning to begin this sermon series. What is wisdom? And I have three things to answer, three couplings or three pairs of things to answer. The first pair is synonyms and antonyms. The second pair is conformed or conforming. And the third pair is logos and reality. Synonyms, antonyms, conform, conforming, logos and reality. So first, synonyms and antonyms. Proverbs here in chapter one, it sets the stage for us regarding what biblical wisdom is. This is a collection of sayings from Solomon and Proverbs that are given in order for us to gain or to receive or to know wisdom. And in Hebrew poetry and parallelism, the style that's woven into this whole chapter is synonyms for the word wisdom. So as you read through this chapter, you'll get to see different words that give us different glosses and pictures and facets and aspects of what wisdom is so that we might understand what wisdom is. 
Now, of course, wisdom presupposes knowledge, as we just said, and you can see all through chapter one here, the words of instruction and understanding and wisdom all crammed in here. But let's begin in verse two. In verse two of chapter one here, you see the word insight. The Hebrew word insight is benah, and it means to notice differences or distinctions, to see things that others may not be able to see, to perceive small differences. There's this guy on Twitter his name is, uh, his handle is Geo Rainbolt. And what he does is he takes videos posted on the internet of someone in a car, for example, and he will just, with the very blurry images of the background out through the car, be able to locate where this person is on Google Maps anywhere in the world in a matter of minutes. And he does this by looking through the window of this car and finding trees and finding blurry license plate and street signs and road signs and the time of day and the weather outside. And he puts all of this together to figure out where this person is and can find it on Google Maps. He has insight, in other words. He can perceive and see things that others cannot see. But insight also means conceiving, not just perceiving, but conceiving creatively, out-of-the-box thinking, solutions to problems. We would solve this problem in several different ways. When someone looks at it and sees just a blur, someone with insight can say, well, here's five different ways that we can approach this problem. So perceiving and conceiving things with knowledge, that's insight. Verse three here and verse four gives us a couple different synonyms. Verse three is wise dealings, and verse four, similar to that, is prudence. This is the strategic and practical ability to know how to accomplish things, to achieve goals, to consider consequences. So it's not just insight, but really this is foresight, to look down the road, to understand what likely may happen. That's foresight. Now, biblical wisdom, though, is not just effective and practical use of knowledge, like insight and foresight. If that was all it is, then we would probably say that, you know, Michael Corleone, the godfather, is the height of all wisdom, right? And that the cartel is wisdom incarnate because they know how to get things done and they know how to solve problems. But biblical wisdom is also directed towards character. Notice the words here in the second half of verse three. So wise dealing in what? Prudence in what? Righteousness, justice, and equity. And then do you see here, verse two, three, seven, and eight, there's this word instruction that keeps showing up. The Hebrew word is mitzem. It's often translated instruction or discipline. So biblical wisdom doesn't just include insight and foresight. It also includes discipline or instruction into the right direction, towards the right purpose, goal, or meaning, or end of life for a human being. All right, I feel like I kind of blitzed you right there. I think I just firehosed you with a bunch of information. I know it's a lot. So let me just wrap this together. Chapter one here in Hebrews, wisdom is using knowledge with insight and foresight disciplined and directed towards life as God created it. I think we can actually make it even tighter than that. There's an Old Testament scholar, Gerhard von Rad, sorry, von Rad, which is a pretty rad name if you think about it. Son of Rad, that'd be, it's a pretty 80s name there, right? Totally rad. Um, this is Gerhard's definition. Wisdom is competency regarding the realities of life competency regarding the realities of life. And I like that definition because it doesn't just include the synonyms that we've been talking about, but it also includes the antonyms for wisdom in our Proverbs passage here. 
The predominant antonyms all throughout the book of Proverbs show up here in verse four and verse seven. And again, in verse 22, they're both together there. The predominant antonyms, the opposite, in other words, of a wise person, is the simple, in verse four, and the foolish, in verse seven. That is the opposite of wisdom, simpleness and foolishness. The simple here in verse four, you'll see, is paired with the youth, and for good reason. Because the simple, what does the simple need? The simple needs knowledge. The simple needs discipline and prudence. They're lacking. But in verse 32 here, what the simple often do is they turn away from the voice of wisdom. They're too easily conformed by the voices of others around them. They're easily led in the wrong direction, into destructive direction, because they care too much what others think. They're too concerned about the voice of other people, wanting too much to fit in. Like when I was 13 or so, when I was a youth, sleeping over at a friend's house, right? (laughs) Maybe some of you will relate to this story, maybe not. It began with toilet paper over at his friend's enemy's house, Evan, who I did not know. But then toilet paper quickly moved to bottle rockets and then to eggs and then to gathering up newspapers in the neighborhood to burn in the driveway next to a car and then fire trucks and it ended with police officers in my friend's living room with us being told that the minimum sentence for arson was three years at 13 years old. I knew things were getting out of hand during the night. It was progressing out of control. But I was too concerned what my friends thought. I was too afraid to say that's enough. Let's go home. I was simple. I needed instruction. And fortunately, my parents were happy to oblige for the rest of the summer. (laughs) I'll never forget cleaning egg off of a stranger's house. Someone that I had never known, and I never will know, but I cleaned egg off of his house. You see, the simple, in Gerhard's definition, the simple is not competent, he's incompetent regarding the realities of life. He can't foresee consequences. He doesn't know the purposes what he's doing. The fool, however, is different than the simple. The fool might be competent, but he disregards the realities of life. See here in verse 7, he despises the wisdom and the discipline of the wise. If the simple cares too much what others think, the fool doesn't care enough. The fool believes his or her way is the way that the world should go and takes no regard for the way that the world actually is does not care about the reality of life as God created and made it, is unconcerned about even the brokenness of the reality of the life we live in, the world we live in. In other words, what the fool wants is to be conforming reality to his or her desires instead of being conformed to reality as it is. I've been reading a book over the last year or so. It's a really excellent book. It's by Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a history of sorts about the idea of the self, what defines it, what directs it, what the self needs in our modern world. It's relatively erudite. Um, He has a smaller book. I think it just came out called Strange New World. But this book charts a course through philosophy, sociology, poetry, psychology to explain some of the fundamental changes in our modern world to the understanding of the self. I want to try and summarize some of it for you, but it is the water I think we all swim in because we live in the modern world, and so it can be hard sometimes to see, but I think hopefully as I summarize what Truman argues here, you'll say, oh yes, I I see that, I feel that. 
Truman argues that our world has come to believe that the primary aspect of who you are, who I am, is what we are on the inside. Our inner desires, our passions, our heart, what we want. This is who I really, truly am. If that's who you are, then the goal for personal fulfillment and success of life is for each individual to express and to have received the inner world of their desires out into the world so that they can find personal fulfillment. Or really, essentially, the goal of life is psychological happiness. To be okay with who we are on the inside, out into the world. The way we talk about this often is saying even things like, we want you to do what you are passionate about. What are your desires? Go find a job. Do something that you matches up with your inner desires and hopes and aspirations and dreams, your passion for life and in life. Then we can become okay with who we are from the inside out into the world. But at the same time, Truman also says, our modern world has become fundamentally materialistic. That there is nothing beyond our material and physical world. Nothing really exists beyond, and if something does exist beyond our material and physical world, it doesn't really matter in the decisions that we make. When we put these two things together, Truman says, what you get is the world that becomes simply raw materials without any meaning, without any purpose or direction. And the inner life of the individual must go out and create reality into this world. Or to say it another way, the individual must be conforming reality around himself or herself, around her or his desires and wants in order to gain psychological happiness and fulfillment. Now, if you're following along, then you should go, ah, that's the way of the fool. The fool says, I don't need to be conformed or competent with the way the world actually is. I will go conforming the world to my wishes and my desires because I know what's best. And frankly, you see this going on right now in the transgender movement. It is a psychological state at war with the reality of the physical state. It demands that the physical realities of life conform to the individual psychological desires of the person. And it is bringing chaos and disaster physically and psychologically to many people, especially young people in our society today. To say otherwise is to ignore reality. God created men and God created women such that their self-giving love and sexual union would ordinarily produce more life, children, and more self-giving love. And this God says at the very beginning of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27, that men and women, they are made in the image of God, individually as men and women, and collectively as men and women together, that their differences and life-generating possibilities are a picture of God himself, of his own eternal relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into eternity past, who for all eternity have been giving themselves to each other in self-giving love that overflows into more love and more life. In other words, the Bible says this is a picture of the deepest realities, the reality of who God himself is 
who created the world and thereby the reality of how the world itself is meant to work. Now, the easiest thing to do is to say, well, at least I'm conformed to reality on this issue. I'm the wise one, and hopefully others will become wise like me, perhaps. Do you know how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines sin? It says this, sin is any lack or want, any lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God, any lack of conformity. That is to say, any sin, every sin, all broken desires, all disordered loves in our life are at the very core an attempt to make the world conform to what we really want, to make ourselves the center of reality, to make the world bend towards us so that we might be, instead of self-giving, as God is, to make ourselves essentially the dead end of life and the direction of all things, to say, I will be God for myself. Like Psalm 47, sorry, Psalm 14 says. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There are no consequences. There is no reality beyond me and my desires. So that in pride, in lust, in anger, in envy, in greed, in gossip, in every and any kind of darkness in all of us, that is the heart. I will be God, and I will conform the world to me and to my wishes. And Proverbs tells us that that is not the way of wisdom. Verse 32, the way of the simple and the fool, that is the way towards death, destruction, and disaster. Spiritually, often physically, for individuals, and of course, even for a society. And that's hard news. So what is the good news? Our gospel reading, gospel of course means good news. Our gospel according to John, our gospel reading begins this way in John chapter one. It says, in the beginning was the word. And we skip over that quickly because we're used to knowing that the word is sort of a stand-in here for Jesus. But for John's predominantly Greek word readers, the Greek word for word is the word logos or logos. That is the word that's being used here. And for a Greek audience, when they would see that, they would know that the logos had a meaning beyond just word. It meant logic. Or it meant, really, for the Greek, it was the logic or reality that undergirded the entire world. The logos was the eternal reality that the world was formed from and formed after. And John is saying here in the beginning of his gospel that this logos is synonymous with God. And he's saying in verse three that this logos is the blueprint for the creation of the world all around us. Well, for a Greek who is reading John chapter one, none of this would be surprising for them. They'd say, of course, that's what we already believed the logos was. But then John says something to a Greek that would be crazy. In verse 14, he says that this eternal reality, the logos, became touchable and present in our world, it became in flesh. It dwelt among us. It became visible. And of course, at the end of the Gospel of John, it became killable. So the heart of the fool is to demand that the world conform to us. What is John revealing to us here about what the heart of God is like? How does God intend to return us to reality? 
by shouting at us from heaven, by going to war against us, by throwing the law book from the mountaintop down into our faces. No, John says this is what's happened in time and space and in history. God entered into our broken and chaotic world. In verse 17, he did so with grace and truth. And this entering God dies the death of the simple and foolish that Proverbs is warning us about here in verse 32 of Proverbs chapter 1. He swaps places with us. This is who God is. His way of returning us to reality is to woo us back to him with the conforming beauty of love to change us from the inside through his love. This is what Tim spoke about last week at Pentecost. This is what verse 23 of Proverbs chapter 1 tells us. He says, if you return to my reproof, behold, in chapter 1, verse 23 of Proverbs, I will pour out my spirit upon you. God delights to give us his very spirit to change us and conform us back to reality. He doesn't give up the law that came from Moses, but instead he comes to woo us through his grace and love that his spirit might make us desire to do the law and desire to be conformed to it. That's why verse seven here of Proverbs tells us what is the beginning of all wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. Tim will speak about this next week, but this is not a negative fear, the fear of punishment, the fear of getting hurt. It is a positive fear. You are fearful to disappoint the one that you love. This is how God has treated me. He came for me. He died for me. He did not leave me in my chaos and brokenness. He entered into my chaos and brokenness. I want to listen, to hear, to be instructed by this one. I do because I love him since he loved me. Stranger Things season four, I don't know if you're watching this. That's one of maybe the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in television. It made me weep. A warning if you haven't watched the show if before, certainly this season, it is certainly um, has many more images of horror, let me say that. So if that is bothering you, don't go watch this show at all. But there's a creature in this show in season four that haunts the mind, that pulls people out of reality and tries to conform them to a false world. And one of the characters, Max, in this show is pulled into this false world. And her friends go to pull her back out. And they do it by playing music by crying out to her, by essentially wooing her back from the darkness with the love of their friendship. The song that they play is Kate Bush's song, Running Up a Hill. <laughs> you might have heard that now. It's really interesting. This, this song came out you know, 40 years ago, and I don't think it ever cracked even the top 100, and now suddenly 40 years later, because of the show, it's like at the top of the billboard charts. The song says in the chorus, if I could, I'd make a deal with God, get him to swap our places. This is exactly what John is telling us in John 1. God has come. He has come to swap our places, to bring us back to reality, to enter into our chaotic, disordered world, to woo us back to him, to the light, and to reality. Stranger things, Max is listening to that song in the world of unreality, full of darkness and death. And off in the distance, you see a light. And then it's hearing the song and is flooded with the images of the love of her friends. And that love breaks the hold of this dark, demonic spirit on her. And she can finally break free and run back to the light 
and back to reality. Max is drawn back by love. We are drawn back to God by love. That is the heart of what God is doing to woo us and restore us back to reality. So we're gonna look through this wisdom literature of Proverbs all throughout the summer series to be returned to reality, to find competency in the world in which God created, how he created it to be. But let me give you an encouragement as I end. Proverbs is 31 chapters. So there are normally 31 days in a month. Will you join us this summer just reading one chapter of Proverbs a day? Throughout the whole month, you will accomplish reading the entire book. Add it to your normal reading. It will only add 10 more minutes to your time. Or if you're not reading God's word at all, make it your Bible reading. Meditate on these Proverbs that your heart and your life and your mind might be shaped by the word of God, the logos, the fundamental reality. And God might conform us again and again into his life and ultimately into his love. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would return us to you, restore us to the world, and restore the world to the way that you intended it and do intend it to be. We know that you will do that. We know that that is the future, and we pray that you would enable us to walk in that path, that we might be men in wisdom, men and women of wisdom, who listen to you, who follow after you, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.